in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be getting an update on the Hayabusa 2 space mission, learning about the latest efforts to target latent HIV, and we'll hear how boldness in birds affects breeding behaviour. I'm Anna Nagel. And I'm Shamini Bundell. Scientists at the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, are currently hopping up and down with excitement as they receive the first images from the surface of the asteroid Ryugu as part of a mission to help understand the origins of life on Earth. After more than three years travelling, the plucky little probe known as Hayabusa 2 has started releasing its various payloads, including some oh-so-cute smartphone-sized hopping rovers designed to navigate the surface of the asteroid in low gravity. Now, it just so happens that Noah Baker has been in Japan for the last week or so reporting for Nature, and with all the excitement surrounding the Hayabusa 2 mission, he couldn't resist heading over to JAXA for an update. A note to you here, listeners, this interview was recorded last week, just after the first two hopping rovers were released. We join Noah on a bus on the outskirts of Tokyo. Back in December 2014, JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, launched Hayabusa 2, the second of JAXA's missions to collect and return samples from nearby asteroids. Three years later, in June this year, Hayabusa 2 arrived at Ryugu, a kilometre-wide asteroid orbiting the Sun between the Earth and Mars. And less than two weeks ago, one of the trickiest parts of the mission began. The Hayabusa 2 mothership dropped the first two of its four payloads, rovers designed to roam, or rather hop, around the asteroid's surface taking pictures. It was a nail-biting time, but the rovers landed safely and have started sending back some incredible images. It was a big step, but there's still a lot to come from Hayabusa 2. Explosive impactors, sample collections, and the landing of the European-designed mascot probe. At the time of recording, it's not yet been released, but by the time you listen to this podcast, we may be getting the first signals from a successful landing. But more on that later. Right now, I'm headed to Mission Control in JAXA's Sagamahara campus, just outside Tokyo, to hear more about those crucial rover landings and what we can expect from the Hayabusa 2 mission in the coming weeks and months. Nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Makoto Yoshikawa, and I am a mission manager of Hayabusa 2. That must mean that this is quite an exciting time for you. Yes, very exciting, because uh, now Hayabusa 2 tries to put small lander on the surface. Also, we will try to touch down. So now it is a very exciting period. So it was just last week where the first two rovers landed. Yes. Tell me, what was that day like? Uh, yes, so uh, Thursday, a spacecraft started to uh, descend. Uh, one day later, uh, it approached about 60 meters above the surface of Ryugu. And then the spacecraft released two small rovers. So at that time, project members were very excited and also uh, 
very happy to see that the separation was successful. And uh, we get first image from a small rover, and uh, we could see the surface. And those images, I've seen some of them, they've been all over the media. They're kind of action images, which、mm. you don't normally get from space、mm. missions.、Uh, what was your reaction when you first saw them? Oh,、uh, so at first、uh, we saw the image. We think that we could feel the dynamic motion of rover, and、uh, also we saw the、uh, sunlight, the color of sunlight. So we are very surprised to see such a beautiful、uh, image. And one of the things that the rovers are going to be doing is to continue taking images from Ryugu. Right. So we can see、uh, many parts of the surface of Ryugu, close up image. And so many small rocks and、uh, no, no sand. In that sense, we are also surprised to see the real surface of Ryugu. These rovers are not like the rovers people might imagine if they think of the Mars rover or something.、Mm-hmm. They're somewhat smaller and they move、mm-hmm. in a very unique way. Tell me、right. about that. It can hop, it can jump.、Uh, inside the rover,、uh, there is、uh, one motor, and the motor rotates a weight. Then, because the gravity is very small, the reaction of weight motion,、uh, the entire rover can move. So that's the first two rovers, but there's more to come. Tell me what's next. So, Hayabusa 2 has、uh, four rovers and lander. So, now we released two of them. And the next one is a little big one、uh, called Mascot.、Uh, Mascot lander was made by the、uh, DLR and CUNES,、uh, Germany and France. And、uh, uh, we will release Mascot lander October 2nd. And after that, Mascot has a battery. And it lasts only 16 hours or so. And so that's three landers now, but that's still not done. There's still more to come. What's next? Yes. So, last one is also a very small rover. Maybe we will release it at the end of the mission before summer of next year. And the very final bit of the mission is one of the biggest challenges you have yet. That, and that is to collect a sample from the asteroid to bring back. And you're not just getting a sample from the surface of the asteroid,、mm-hmm. it's actually from inside the asteroid, and you have to get inside the asteroid first. Tell me what's going to happen there. Ah, yes. So, after releasing Lander, next big challenge is to get the sample from the surface. So, spacecraft will make a touchdown to the surface late October. So, at first, We get the surface material, but next year we will try to make a small crater on the surface of Ryugu. Hayabusa 2 has an impactor. And this impactor is essentially an explosive device. Right.、Uh, it has a two kilogram copper, and、uh, this will be accelerated to about two kilometers per second. The impactor mission is very risky, and so when impactor explodes, Hayabusa 2 spacecraft hide behind the asteroid. And、uh, if a spacecraft hide behind the asteroid, we cannot see the impact event. So before Hayabusa 2 hides, it will release a small camera, the private camera. The sm- small camera can watch、uh, the impact. So this is a very complicated and risky mission, but a very Exciting mission. So, from what you've told me, this is a very elaborate and complicated mission with many, many stages.、Right. What are you trying to find out? Our main purpose is to study the organic matter because Ryugu is a C type asteroid, and、uh, normally, C type asteroids 
has organic matter and also uh, water. The organic matter we will get from Ryugu is before Earth's life born. I mean, maybe we can study the original material that create the life on the Earth. That was Makoto Yoshikawa of the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, talking to Noah Baker. We'll be sharing some of the awesome Hayabusa 2 images on our Twitter at Nature Podcast, and you can find out more on the mission at nature.com forward slash news. Next up, Benjamin Thompson has been finding out why two drugs can be better than one. The world today is still in the midst of an HIV epidemic. The latest data show that tens of millions of people are still living with the virus. But many of these people are able to live healthy lives by using antiretroviral therapies to control the levels of virus in their body. These medications have revolutionised the management of HIV, but they're not a cure. In the vast majority of cases, these drugs need to be taken for life. And when they're not, HIV levels can quickly rebound. The virus's ability to bounce back from undetectable levels comes from the way it infects immune cells in the body. Here's Dan Baruch from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Basically, when humans become infected with HIV, a subset of the infected CD4-positive T cells are infected and uh, become latent. In other words, the virus essentially goes to sleep in those cells, and those latently infected cells are the reason why we cannot cure HIV infection with current drugs. The dormant HIV hiding in T-cells isn't affected by antiretroviral drugs. So if a patient stops taking the drugs, the virus can quickly re-emerge and re-establish an active infection. Finding a way to target this so-called latent infection would be a huge milestone in efforts to eliminate HIV. In a paper in Nature this week, Dan and his colleagues have been investigating a way to target latent viral infection in monkeys. Their approach is to combine two steps. The first wakes up the dormant virus, making infected cells easier to detect and target. The second step destroys the infected T cells. The idea has been around for a while, and a number of groups are pursuing it. Uh, Some people call it the shock and kill approach or the kick and kill approach. Basically, the concept is that if you use one compound that might be able to stimulate or wake up the latent viral reservoir, then you might be able to deliver another hit that will be able to see those cells and eliminate them. In this work, Dan and his colleagues gave the monkeys two drugs. The first was an innate immune stimulant, which stimulated the overproduction of lots of different types of immune cells and has previously been shown to wake up a dormant HIV infection. The second drug was a broadly neutralising antibody that targets the HIV virus, This group of antibodies are of great interest to researchers as they're able to target multiple strains of HIV. To test how this drug combination might affect the latent virus reservoir, Dan and his colleagues infected a group of rhesus monkeys with a hybrid simian human immunodeficiency virus called SHIV or SHIV. The monkeys were then given a long-term course of antiretrovirals to control their infection and split into four groups. Then we administered either the antibody the innate immune stimulant, both or neither. We then allowed a period of time for the antibody to wash out of the system, and then we stopped antiretroviral drugs. In the monkeys that received neither drug, SHIV levels rebounded very quickly after the antiretrovirals were stopped. The same was true in most of the animals that received only one drug. However, in the group given both drugs, things were rather different. These animals 
had five-fold delay in the time to rebound. The amount of virus that rebounded came to much lower viral loads. And five out of 11 animals actually did not rebound at all with 200 days of follow-up. In these five animals, the researchers were unable to detect any SHIV virus after stopping treatment with antiretrovirals. So this study demonstrates that a broadly neutralizing antibody together with an innate immune stimulant might be a viable strategy for targeting the latent viral reservoir. Although this is just one study and is proof-of-concept work, Sharon Lewin from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, who wasn't part of the research, says the results are encouraging. Yeah, really positive. This is a definitely very exciting study. No intervention has looked as promising as this yet in monkeys. And, you know, it's in a field that's extraordinarily difficult where we've had lots of negative results so far, but still some caveats about the exact mechanism of how these interventions are working. One of the caveats, Sharon points out, is that the monkeys were given antiretrovirals just seven days after being infected with SHIV. This meant that the level of infected cells in their system was pretty low to begin with. This is unlikely to be representative of what happens in the real world, where people might not start taking antiretroviral therapy for months or even years after infection. And that's not all. At the moment, they've followed uh, the monkeys out to six months after stopping treatment. That's a pretty long time. But we do know that in rare cases, um, in humans who have stopped treatment, occasionally you can have very late rebounds. So be interesting to watch to follow these monkeys even longer. Although they, they really did go to quite extensive efforts to prove that they couldn't find virus in these monkeys where re- rebound didn't occur. Dan also raised these caveats, and he is keen to do more work to understand the mechanism by which these drugs function together and to figure out whether the combination might work in humans. Finding treatments that target latent viral infection would be a huge step forward in the fight against HIV, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, the best treatment for people living with HIV is long-term antiretroviral therapy, which really does work. And uh, while we're investigating ways to cure HIV, The most important thing for people living with HIV is to have access to treatment and to stay on treatment lifelong. That was Sharon Lewin. She's written a News and Views article on this work over at Nature.com, where you'll also find Dan Baruch's research paper. Coming up in the show, we'll be getting the lowdown on all the latest Nobel Prize winners. Hey, Sharmini, did you hear about the scarecrow that won a Nobel Prize? He was outstanding in his field. That's coming up in the news chat. First, though, Matthew Warren is here with this week's research highlights. Spare a thought for Jupiter, which scientists have discovered is receiving a bit of a walloping. As meteorites hurtle through Jupiter's atmosphere, they produce brief flashes of light. Five of these flashes have been caught on camera over the past eight years, and now a group of amateur and professional astronomers have combined forces to figure out just how common they are. By analysing the videos, the team predicted that between 10 and 65 objects must slam into Jupiter every year, ranging in size from 5 to 20 metres wide. Less than half of these impacts are visible from Earth, so stargazers will need a fair amount of luck to catch a glimpse of them. But Jupiter's current path along its orbit is making it more visible to astronomers in the Northern Hemisphere, so more collisions may soon be spotted. Read this impactful research over at Astronomy and Astrophysics. Here on Earth, we're generating more and more electricity thanks to solar power. 
But how can we harness the sun's energy when it's not shining? One group of researchers think they have the answer. An all-in-one device called a solar flow battery that can both capture and store solar energy, saving it for a rainy day. The new device consists of a solar cell paired with a high-voltage battery. The energy harvested by the cell is captured by the battery, which stores it in chemical form. The solar energy can then be released later as electricity. This isn't the first integrated device, but it is the most efficient so far, able to convert 14.1% of incoming solar energy into electricity. The researchers say that with further improvements, their battery could be used to store energy at sites that aren't connected to the electrical grid. Charge over to Chem to find out more. This is the call of the Great Tit, a small songbird found all over the world. One of the places that this species has made its home is Whiteham Woods in Oxford, in the south of England. Since 1947, scientists from the University of Oxford have been researching the biology and behaviour of the great tits found here, making them some of the best understood bird populations on Earth. This week, a paper in Nature, Ecology and Evolution describes how personality traits in great tits are linked to their breeding behaviour. Reporter Anand Jagatia spoke to lead author Josh Firth about the study and started by asking what exactly personality means in a bird. It's basically how bold they are when they first are introduced into a novel room or introduced to a novel object, how fast they'll approach it, how much they'll move around and just the basic level of activity. And that seems to be fairly consistent with, within individuals. So if you release them and then capture them again at a later date and bring them back into the room, they display the same behaviour. So in this paper, you wanted to look at the link between this personality and the breeding behaviour. So, so how do great tits breed? Are, are they monogamous? Yeah, so just like 90% of the different bird species, great tits are also socially monogamous. So come springtime, they form these pair bonds that breed in a, a nest box together. And, you know, these pair bonds are really important to these birds because it's impossible for them to raise their brood without having a partner. And do they form these bonds for life? And are they like 100% faithful? Interestingly, about 50% of the pairs who stay around from year to year will actually divorce come the next winter. And also, you do see um, occasions of cheating during the breeding season as well. So we've kind of known about bird personality for a while. People have studied breeding behaviour as well for a while. But no one has been sort of looked at how those two things are related before. Why, why is that? Yeah, so it's the first time that we've looked at how the, the formation of these pair bonds can actually be related to like an individual level trait. And it was actually really hard to do this because you need three levels of data, basically. First of all, you need to know the bird's personalities of the individuals. Second of all, you need to know who they're breeding with when it comes to the spring. And then third, and probably most uniquely to this, is you need to know their social interactions. How did you go about collecting those three levels of data then? So since the 1940s, the, every great tit that has been caught in Whiteham put a small, unique ring on their leg so we can see every year which bird is breeding with which other bird. We've got birds that we can trace back 50 generations now. And then the social network data is done by putting a radio frequency identification device on the leg. So by tracking which birds are interacting with which other birds, you know, every year we get a, a social network of, say, a thousand different individuals and we know how much time each of them spent with each other 
and uh, who they were connected to. So what did you find then when you looked at the birds' personalities and how that affected the formation of these pair bonds? What we found in this work is that it's the, the bald males, the ones who we find have bald personalities, seem to choose their partners sooner, so they'll, they'll meet them faster and then start spending more and more time with them quicker compared to the shy males who seem to take longer to choose a partner in the first place. And then even when they do meet them, they spend less time with them than the bald males. But the shy males have the benefit of sampling lots of other females right up until the breeding season begins. So they might end up actually getting a, a better suited mate rather than just leaping in initially and trying to form that pair bond like the bald males seem to do. In that case, it seems then that being being shy or, or kind of playing the field seems like a better option. So why do you think that the, the bolder males are kind of taking this other approach? Well, it's difficult to say which strategy might be best. Um, you can imagine in some circumstances, it might be better to just find a partner and start building up your pair bond so that you've got a really strong pair bond by the time the spring comes along when you've both got to work together to raise your young. And then in other situations, for example, if there were lots of females around, it might be better to play the field a bit more and really wait and then find an optimal mate at the last minute and then breed from there. In an ideal world, would you then be able to link this data with the breeding success and the kind of survival fitness of those pairs? Yeah, so our, our next steps now are basically looking at how their, both their personality and the pair bond that they're forming through winter relates to their reproductive success. And then we can also look at how the personalities might drive the amount of pair bonding in the system and actually structure the society in general. We've talked about personality of the male birds here, but did you look also look at whether it was affected by the female personality traits? Yeah, so uh, another interesting part of this work is that we actually didn't find a significant effect of female personality on pair bonding. So it wasn't the case that the bolder females behaved differently from the shy females in terms of the amount of time they spent with their future partner or how soon they, they met them. So we really need to do more work into the different roles of personality depending on the sex. And is there any link that you know of between like the personality of the birds and whether they're more or less likely to cheat on their partners? Yeah, so really interestingly as well, they were actually found in the past that the bolder males um, are actually more likely to cheat on their partners than the shyer males. It might be that when it comes to the breeding season, they might feel like they've got a, a less optimal mate than what they could have had because they've rushed into it more, and that might mean that they're then more likely to cheat. What What's kind of next for you? It seems like this is like an amazing resource and you can kind of just keep building and, and keep kind of looking at future generations. What um, other kind of upcoming work are you excited about? So we've got quite a few plans. Um, obviously, we want to do more and more experiments where we can actually control which birds are allowed to feed with which other birds so we can actually control which ones form flocks together. So then we can actually control the social networks and test the consequences in that way. And then we've also got some other plans to see how these individual level behaviours like personality do actually scale up to shape the structure of the population in terms of how well connected it is or how cooperation might propagate through the population as well. That was Josh Firth from the University of Oxford talking to Anand Jagatia. You can read Josh's study over at nature.com forward slash nat evil. Now we're welcoming Benjamin Thompson back to the studio for a very special Nobel News Chat. Yes, thanks, Sharmini. I'm here with Flora Graham, editor of Nature's Briefing, and, uh, and we're going to talk all things Nobel. Well, 
A year's gone by already, Flora. I can't quite believe it. And uh, and things are a bit different with the prize winners this year. Listeners, I'm sure you remember last year, the prizes were predominantly won by US researchers and exclusively won by men. But uh, things are a bit different this year. Absolutely. Exciting times, particularly for Canadians. <laughs> oh, well, listen, let's get on to Canada in a little bit, I think, Flora. Um, but let's start with the first prize, which was announced on Monday. And that was, of course, the 2018 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. And, uh, and this was shared between two researchers. That's right. The prize went to Satsuku Honjo from Kyoto University in Japan and James Allison from the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And both of them are pioneers in immunotherapy. Yeah, and they work in the field of cancer biology. And uh, the Nobel Committee said that their work was, quote, an entirely new principle for cancer therapy. Absolutely. This is the idea that you can harness the body's own immune system um, to behave differently in order to attack the tumors in the body. Hmm. I mean, I've heard it uh, described as uh, taking the brakes off of the immune system so uh, so it can attack the tumor cells rather than kind of directing treatment at the tumor cells themselves. Right. So in the 90s, um, Allison was one of a few scientists who studied this checkpoint protein. So that's why this his therapy is called the checkpoint inhibitor. And it actually stops immune cells from attacking tumors. So what he and his colleagues did was they engineered an antibody that stopped those breaks from being put on and kind of set the immune system free to do its business. Now, independently from that, um, Hanjo discovered a different immune cell protein, which also acts as a break on the immune system. And uh, this has become uh, really effective in several different cancers, including lung cancer, which is obviously a major killer. Well, that is fantastic news. Um, what I would say, though, uh, if you go to our website, nature.com slash news listeners, you'll see a, uh, a lovely picture of the two groups here. And uh, and certainly Honjo's group, all giving the thumbs up uh, and their excitement hearing hearing their, uh, their boss won the prize. But maybe things didn't quite go as smoothly for Alison. Yeah, apparently Allison was in New York for a conference and he was woken up at 5.30 in the morning by a call from his son giving him the good news. And uh, apparently by half six, his colleagues were banging on the door with the champagne ready to party. Well, Flora, what are people saying then about these winners? I think people are really appreciating that at one point, although this is now one of the hottest areas in cancer research, at one point, not that many people were that into it. So people are really appreciating that these few immunologists have kicked off an area that's going to really be helping a lot of people. And uh, apparently these two guys are kind of the obvious picks from, from that group. Well, let's move on then, Flora, to our second prize. And that was announced on Tuesday. And, uh, and that was the physics prize, which was shared this time by three researchers. Who were they? That's right. It went half and half. Half of it went to Donna Strickland and Gerard Maru. And the other half went to Arthur Ashkin. Well, there's a lot to unpick in this one, I think. Let's start with Donna Strickland. Uh, she's only the first uh, woman in 55 years to win uh, this prize and only the third to ever to, to have won it. Yes, that's right. It's very exciting. Um, she follows on the heels of Maria Gopert-Meyer, who won in 1963, and of course, Marie Curie, 1903. She's also the fifth Canadian to win the Nobel Prize in Physics. And to see a Canadian one, I must admit, as a former physicist myself and a Canadian, it does kind of warm the cockles of my Canadian heart. Well, if she's North American, I guess she must have been woken up in the middle of the night with the announcement too. That's right. She's at the University of Waterloo. And she says that when she got called, she thought it was a prank call. But then she figured, considering it was actually Nobel Day, nobody would be mean enough to do that to her. Well, Flora, let's talk about what Strickland and Moreau won this half of the prize for. Um, what, can, what can you tell me about that? Well, it's all about lasers. So Maru and Strickland won for uh, ultra-short pulse lasers. These are lasers that can capture things so fast and so tiny that 
previously we never thought we'd be able to resolve them. These lasers also can act as the sharpest of scalpels. So these are the lasers that are used in LASIK eye surgery to cut into the human eye. Let's think about the other side of the prize then, and that was won by Arthur Ashkin, who at 96 is the oldest ever Nobel laureate. Um, What has he won for? Well, Ashkin really invented what we had longed hoped for, the ability to move objects with light. He calls it optical tweezers, and they could grab and control tiny microscopic objects, for example, viruses, cells, things that you couldn't grab any other way. Well, let's move on to the final prize, and this is always announced at the 11th hour before the show gets put to bed. Quite, quite literally, it was about 11 o'clock this morning. Um, but this is, of course, the chemistry prize, and I think that this year it's definitely got a bit of a biochemistry flavour. Our three winners have, according to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, quote, harnessed the power of evolution. That's right. Half the prize went to Frances Arnold from the California Institute of Technology. And she has done some amazing work, which she likens to breeding racehorses. But in her case, it's enzymes. The other half was awarded to Gregory Winter and George Smith, who pioneered a method called phage display that uses bacteria infecting viruses to evolve new proteins. Let's look at what they actually do then. What's kind of the broader scope of their work? I think what's interesting is both of these techniques have really created a a chain reaction in the field that's allowed people to kind of run with this to create the enzymes, the proteins, the other things that they need to then push the field further. So, for example, uh, Winter created a a company um, that evolved antibodies adapted for use as in human therapies. So they can do things like neutralize toxins or counteract autoimmune diseases. Well, if both sides of this prize have provided the foundation for lots of research, where does it go next? Well, apparently Frances Arnold has said that one of her favourite applications of directed enzyme evolution has yet to be realised. She says that one of her dreams is to create an enzyme that can take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into materials and fuels. Well, listeners, I'm sure we'll keep an eye out for that one. And if you want to hear the latest Nobel news, I would head over to nature.com slash news. And of course, if you want to get the very latest science updates straight to your inbox, I would sign up for the Nature Briefing. And Flora, where can listeners do that? That's at nature.com slash briefing. Perfect. Well, that's it for this year's Nobel Roundup. Anna and Sharmini, back to you. Thanks, Ben. Well, that's it for this week and my first time hosting the Nature Podcast. Well, it's been great having you, Anna. Um, Where can our listeners find you usually? If you really want to find me, you can follow me on Twitter at Anna Lukok, or occasionally they let me loose on the at Nature News feeds on Twitter or Facebook. Well, that's all for now. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Anna Nagel. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>